The sermon this afternoon is on the truth of the Word of God concerning the Trinity, the, the triune nature of our God and Lord. And we have a summary of this teaching in Lord's Day 8 of the Heidelberg Catechism. You can find this on page 524 in the Book of Praise, and we'll read that together now. Lord's Day 8, and this first question is making reference to that which came before it, which is um, a recitation of the Apostles' Creed, the articles of the Christian faith. And so the, the question following now is question and answer 24. How are these articles divided into three parts? The first is about God the Father and our creation. The second, about God the Son and our redemption. And the third, about God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Since there is only one God, why do you speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because God has so revealed Himself in His Word that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. So far then reading of this confession of the church. After the proclamation of the gospel, we will sing together hymn seven, stanzas one, two, three, and four. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this afternoon in, in Lord's Day 8, the congregation is beginning its way through exposition of the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, in the Catechism, in an exposition of, of the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is, is a summary of all that is revealed in the Word of God concerning your salvation. And it's important as, as we go along that we remember that, that this is how this creed is supposed to function for us. First of all, this, this creed, or all the creeds, this, this afternoon we made use of the Athanasian Creed. These creeds are the church's confession. This is something that the church says in reply to God, after God reveals Himself in His Word, this is our reply. This is our reply not only to God, but our confession also before the world. This is the church's declaration of amen. It's an amen to everything that God has taught in His Word. And so it's very pleasing to God when His people publicly confess to be true what is true. And we confess to be true, all that God has revealed Himself to us. So yes, this is the church's confession. It's pleasing to God, but it's also functioning for us uh, in, a, in a very specific way as we make our way through the catechism. We can recognize that the Apostles' Creed and the rest of the creeds of the church 
They form the framework of everything that Christians ought to believe, right? We're, uh, we, if you look back to the top of this page, right above Lord's Day 8, this is question and answer 22 in Lord's Day 7. So we're asked the question about what faith is. Faith is, is, um, is a, a sure knowledge, and it's also a firm confidence. We believe certain things. And then we're asked that follow-up question, what then must a Christian believe? We must believe all that is promised in the gospel. And this then is a summary of that gospel. We accept and believe everything that God has revealed in His Word. But more pointedly, we believe and accept not just what, what God says to be true. We don't just believe information that God has given us about the world, but we accept and believe that everything that God has promised us in His Word. The gospel is promissory language. This is for you. This is for your assurance. This promise that all of these things, salvation in Christ, life in His name, believe the promise that this is not just for other people, but this is also for each one of you. Each one of you is called to believe that. And that's why it's important that, this, uh, that the catechism directs our attention to, to the structure of the creed. God the Father in our creation, God the Son in our redemption, God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. This promise is not only for others, but also for you. This is what you are supposed to be saying. God the Father and our creation. This is personal. God the Son and our redemption. God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. We can see here that we are confessing what the triune God has done and what He will do for our salvation. And these are His promises for each one of us. And if we believe these things, if we confess them, then we are united to Christ by faith and we certainly receive all of His benefits. So it's a very beautiful thing. What a beautiful thing that the, churches, that the church confesses this triune God. And that's our theme this afternoon. We as the church, we confess a triune God. And we'll see three aspects of this. First, we'll see the fact of the Trinity. Secondly, we'll see the work of the Trinity. And then finally, we'll see the confession of the Trinity. So first of all, we'll see the fact of the Trinity. Now, The Trinity is, is maybe one of the most mind-boggling things that God has revealed to us in His Word. would be hard-pressed to come up with an, with an equal to that because it really defies logic, doesn't it? We know that God is one. In His Word, God says that He is one. The, the Shema Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. But as we confess here, as we recognize in His Word, God is also three persons. Right? And that's what we're asked in that second question in Lord's Day 8. Since there is only one God, why do you speak of three persons? That doesn't make sense. We know that one does not equal three. 
right? We know that three is not the same as one, right? So I'm holding up a certain number of fingers here. Kids, do you know how many this is? Nod, yes. Okay, so you know how many fingers this is. Now do you know how many fingers this is? Yes, of course. And you can tell the difference between the two. This is not the same as this, is it? This is completely different from this. It's not the same. Okay, we can all understand that. We know that one is not three, and three is not one. And this is the, this is the principal objection to the truth of the triune nature of God. It just doesn't make sense. We are human beings with brains, and God has endowed us with with the gift of, of logic and reason, we all know that one does not equal three and three does not equal one. So what is going on here? Why can, we, why can we just accept this? Why are we willing to suspend logic, suspend reason, and accept that God is three even though God is one? Well, we, we try to make sense of this. We come up with analogies, um, you know, illustrations to, to try to wrap our minds around this. You might say something like, okay, well, it's like this. You know, God is like, is like one man who does a bunch of different things. So you might have a man who is a, a professor who goes and teaches, and, and he has a certain relationship with his students. And then when he's done teaching, he comes home, and he changes clothes, and, and then he you know, it's like a different, he's a dad, and he horses around with his children, and he has a very different relationship with his own children. And, but then also he, let's say, is the chairman of the school board and has, a, and has another kind of responsibilities and a different set of relationships with those people. So you have one man, but, but three different personalities and three different kinds of relationships with people. You know, the Trinity is sort of like that, right? Well, maybe you recognize this heresy, actually, as something called modalism, where it said that God is one, but, but then he just sort of shows himself in different ways, or at different times he acts, uh, he puts a different hat on sort of thing. The major problem with this is that it doesn't acknowledge that God is all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is all three at all times and, and all to the fullest degree, all the time. And there is cooperation and union of wills within, within the Godhead. God doesn't stop performing the work of Father in order to do some sun work or some spirit work. He doesn't put a special hat on for each one. And, and there are plenty of other analogies that, that try to get us to understand a, something of this, you know, like... You know, maybe God is like a three-leaf clover. So he's always one, but, you know, there's different parts of, of God. Well, the problem there is that each person wouldn't be fully God. Each person would only be a part of, of God. And as we confessed with the Athanasian Creed, um, you know, you, you don't confuse the, the sub, you don't divide the substance or confuse the person. There are not three separate almighties, but there is one almighty, one God. Every analogy for God falls flat when you push it even a little bit. Why is that? 
Why does no analogy perfectly capture the triune nature of God? Well, it can't. No analogy can because there is nothing. There is no idea that exists in our universe that can be fully like the nature of God. God is holy. God is unique. There's nothing like Him anywhere. And so, we can't fully understand this. And this makes some people reject it. Right? Well, if I can't understand it, then forget it. I'm not going to touch it. I don't want anything to do with it. But here's the thing. We have to be willing. We have to, we have to be okay with confessing our inability, our smallness in the face of so great a God. Because that's the big secret. It's okay. It's okay that we cannot understand God fully. Because if we could understand God fully, what would that mean? That would mean we're greater than God. The only thing that human beings can understand completely and fully are things that are either equal or less than us. Think about how, how far short we are of being able to comprehend everything about God. I've used this exercise in, in catechism class before. I would ask the class to try to come up with, with, an, with an example of an animal, some creature that, that has very little or, or no intelligence at all. What is... What is the most brainless animal you can think of. Well, and a couple of times, the class centered on a goldfish. It's generally believed, I'm not actually sure if this is true, but it's, it's sort of general knowledge that, that a goldfish has very short memory, something like three seconds or something. A goldfish is not a reasonable creature not really capable of deep and profound thought, right? And the question is, to what degree can a goldfish wrap its head around all of the details of a decision that you make? For example, you decide that you're going to move to Calgary uh, in a month or so, or sometime this year, and you've thought about everything, your family is growing, you need a bigger house, let's assume it's a seller's market in Edmonton, and it's a buyer's market in Calgary, so, you know, it makes sense. Um, and lately, you've been working from home quite a bit, and so you need, a, you need a space in your home for, for office area, and maybe you have a child that has certain needs, and you found a school in Calgary that's perfect fit for your child, and of course, you're closer to your family. You have family in southern Alberta, Coldale, Tabor area, so it, it all makes sense. All, all of these boxes get ticked. So the question is, to what degree can a goldfish understand all of your reasons for making the move to Calgary? Of course, not at all. Goldfish can't make sense of all those pros and cons. A goldfish maybe understands one part per billion of that. But now here's the question. This is where the rubber meets the road. If, if a goldfish's thinking is here and 
and our ability to think and reason is here. Where do you put God? Is God just a little bit higher than us? Well, obviously God is infinitely higher than us. If a goldfish is here and we're here, God is infinitely greater than us in absolutely every way. The point is that we have to be okay with that. We have to be okay confessing that there's stuff about God that we will never understand because He is God. That's wonderful. We expect that. Any God that I can fully understand, I I don't want to worship because that's no God at all. So we should trust that God has revealed Himself reliably in His Word. He's revealed that He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has told us this, and and this is proven from His Word itself. We trust His Word even though we we can't totally get it. We confess our trust in, in the Lord and... We expect that to the degree that he wants us to be able to contemplate and comprehend his nature, he gives us the ability to do so, and the rest we just confess his, his incredible majesty and his holiness. We read from Matthew 28 a little while ago, and this is uh, a landmark passage for, for the teaching of the Trinity, where Jesus gives instruction to his disciples to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All of this, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in one verse. But this isn't the only place where we encounter teaching about the relationship between Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Actually, we had all three mentioned as well in uh, Acts, or sorry, in John chapter 15, where Jesus speaks about the relationship that he has with his Father, and then he says that he is sending the Holy Spirit, whom he received from the Father, and now he is sending it, uh, sending him, not it. Don't say that the Holy Spirit is it. He's sending him to his people. We read from John 17, where Jesus speaks about the glory that he had with God before the world began. There's an enormous weight of Scripture proof of of the divinity of God the Father and God the Son. The entire Gospel of John has this as its chief purpose, this mysterious unity of of the Godhead, especially the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. If you remember in Acts chapter 5, there was that incident with Ananias and Sapphira. This is when people are bringing their possessions to the apostles and... Uh, they're, they're, they're presenting them to, to be given as gifts, you know, uh, distribution to the church. And they had deceived, they'd been uh, deceptive, and they kept some of that back. And Peter charges Ananias and Sapphira with the crime of deceiving the Holy Spirit. He says, Ananias, you are not lying to men but you are lying to God. So there's testimony about the divinity and the personhood of the Holy Spirit. And, and that fact isn't, it isn't a brand new idea to the people of God. This, this begins already in the Old Testament. There is, 
We'll see uh, some of this in just a moment with the second point concerning the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I just want to read uh, a little section from Genesis chapter 16 where Hagar has been mistreated by Sarah. So there's Abraham and, and Sarah, and Hagar is Sarah's uh, servant. And after Hagar has, been, has given birth to, to Ishmael, Hagar is mistreated by her. She flees. She's in the wilderness. And we read there that the angel of the Lord comes to her and appears to her. So Genesis 16, verses 7 through 13. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, because, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son and shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. So here, it's the angel of the Lord, they speak together. And we read there in verse 13, Hagar, give this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. She says, I have now seen the one who sees me. It's very clear here that the angel who came to see her is God, but somehow is also sort of distinct from God. And again, we can't understand how, how these things can both be true, but this is God showing himself to his people and teaching something about his nature in a way that we can't fully comprehend, but we believe and accept and rejoice over. So again, this is how question and answer 25 treats this. Since there is only one God, why? Why do we speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because God has so revealed himself. This is how God has shown himself in his word. These three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. So we confess not only the nature, the fact that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We confess not only the nature of God as, as revealed so wonderfully in His Word, but also in His work. So not just the nature of God, but also the work of God. He works as triune God. So we have this very wonderful, this uh, handy division pointed out in question and answer 24. The work of God for us is split into these three categories. We have first God the Father and our creation, and we have God the Son and our redemption, and then we have God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification.
And we can recognize this pattern in the Word of God. This is how God attributes this work to Himself, right? In, in creation, God the Father can be seen as, as the primary one acting and moving and, and doing things. He is begetting all of creation. God is making Himself the Father of the human race. So it's very fatherly activity that God is doing in His work of creation. Same with God the Son. When we think about how we are reconciled to God, how we are redeemed and washed and cleansed, we're concerned primarily with the work of Jesus Christ, everything that He came to do. He came to be born as man. He came to suffer and die and rise from the dead. All of these things that are mentioned in our creeds. And then finally, the Holy Spirit. We see Him at work in our hearts, and, and, we, and we see His work in, in the progress of the sanctification, the holiness of the church. And that's why the articles about the church are included in the, in the section uh, that confesses the truth of the Holy Spirit. But what we have to realize is no matter who is primarily thought of with, with one of these categories of work, the reality is that all three persons of the Godhead are active in everything that God does. All three persons receive equal praise and honor and glory. Think of creation, for example. So we just confess here the first, the first part of the creed is about God the Father and our creation. But we recognize that God the Son is active in creation. God the Holy Spirit is active in creation. Let's just consider a couple of examples of this. So first of all, Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, this is on page 983. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Speaking of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Listen to this. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. So this is the Son of God, not not the Father we're talking about here. All things were created through the Son of God. And we have that exact same truth of the Son's role in creation. We have the same thing in John chapter 1. Let's turn there as well. This is on page 886. The very first sentence of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And just so you know, we're, we're talking about God the Son. You, you know this is true if you skip ahead to verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we're talking about God the Son. And then in verse 3, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So yes, we confess God the Father in our creation. But 
God the Son is also active in that work of creation. And then we could go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where God is creating the heavens and the earth. The earth is formless and void. And what do we read there? The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The world was created by the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. A redemption came about by the work of Christ. But how often do we read in the Gospels that when Jesus came to earth to do His work, He came in the power of the Holy Spirit. And what does Jesus Himself say about His work? I'm not doing my own will. I have come to do the will of the Father. Our creation, our redemption, our sanctification, although we can attribute this work some to primarily to the Father, some to the Son, some to the Holy Spirit, we, we know and we rejoice that this is done in perfect harmony, in perfect cooperation among all three persons of the Godhead. What a God we worship! In all three persons, our triune God is still at work in our lives today. We've been redeemed by Christ. We are being renewed by His Holy Spirit. And the Father of Christ is, because of His work, He is our Father who preserves us and who governs this world for our protection for our benefit, so that all things work together for our salvation. This creed and all the creeds of the church, they speak to the, to the whole of our relationship with God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is personal. He is our personal God. We confess here all that God has done, all that He is doing, all that He will continue to do for us. We cannot separate God. Our salvation depends on God's unity in His nature as triune. And so indeed, this is something that we celebrate and confess. And that's our third point here, very briefly. So we mentioned already that we confess this triune God because it is good and pleasing to God when His people echo what He has taught. He has taught us that this is true, and therefore we profess and celebrate that this is true. We believe these things. That's how these creeds begin. That, that's what the, the word creed means. It comes from the Latin credo, I believe, or we believe, or whoever believes. It's important that we not only believe this to be factually true, but that we proclaim it to whoever would hear us say it. It's how we speak the truth of God in love. And when we do this, we're also committing ourselves to this truth. This is what it means to profess our faith like we do every, every Lord's Day. We are actively committing ourselves to this truth to continue to believe it, to teach it, and to live by it. And perhaps most of all, to, to celebrate this truth before the world. 
When we confess the Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we lift up His name in front of whoever hears this. And as we read in John 15, this is going to cause some people to despise you for it. How could you believe this? These are all the implications of what you believe. But we can believe and profess this because the Holy Spirit who testifies Himself about Christ helps us to bear witness to the glory of God. As we go forward in the coming weeks, as you go forward through this exposition of the creed, all that we profess about the nature and about the works, the wonderful works of God, may God bless all of you as you, as you increase in your understanding of the richness of, of what we confess. As you come to realize the importance the severe importance of each one of these articles and to realize what is at stake. What is at stake with these truths? What is at stake? Well, the salvation that you receive through faith in Jesus Christ, that is what is at stake. Because it's by true faith, this assurance of the promises of the gospel, it's by this true faith that we are grafted into Christ and we accept all of His benefits. We must believe what God has promised us. And this confession is the substance of all that God has promised, not only to others, but also to, to you and me. God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace for the sake of Christ's merits. This is our confession. It is with the heart one believes and is justified, and it is with the mouth confession is made and is saved. All glory to God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.